Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. In this episode we will take a look at the third round first legs of the Copa Libertadores and also answer some listener questions, as well as a couple of our own perhaps. I'm your host, Adam Brandon. Joining me today is Austin Miller in Chicago. How are you, Austin? I'm doing well, Adam. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm good. It's a, it's a little bit strange to be talking to you during the daytime. Usually we do this in the dead of night. So I know, it's, diff- it's different. It's a different feel. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it'll be a better podcast. Maybe it'll be a worse podcast. Who knows? Who knows? Um, I, I have no excuses for being sleepy today, though, so I'm a bit nervous. Anyway, one man who can't be nervous is WFI's Jesus himself, Simon Edwards, making his return to the pod today. How are you, Simon? That that might require some context. I'm good. I'm good. Um, that wasn't self I don't even go there. I, you know, I mentioned I had some followers, and, and, you know, one thing led to another, and Austin was declaring me the World Football Index Jesus. And, well, it's flattering, if if not a little bit overblown. But I'm good. Good here in sunny Medellin, Friday afternoon, ready for the weekend. All is good. I, I, want, I would like to say that I only declared you Jesus after a little bit of prodding from you. You said, eh, could you say I'm Jesus? And then I said, yes, you can say you're Jesus. So uh, acting as though I completely brought this out of nowhere is a bit unfair. <laughs> Simon was I mean, kind of digging for it. And I just, I just Ed, acquiesced. Eddie, Eddie, is, Eddie is the king and I am the savior of man. So, you know, <laughs> these things happen. I, I always imagined you as Prince Eddie, you know, for the Edwards. So <laughs> yes. you got King Eddie's antenna and then... Prince Eddie Simon, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. I'll take it. Um, we're, uh, we'll start this week with the game of the week, really, even though it had one goal in it. It, it had the best football. And it saw Junior record a 1-0 win over Guarani. Simon, I'll come to you first. There was an incredible amount of chances created by Junior in this game. I know we were having a bit of a back and forth during the match. You know, I was quite impressed with them. And and, and and the amount of chances they were created where you were just simply quite annoyed and frustrated at how poor their finishing was. No? Yeah, I just think they had a huge opportunity in this tie. Um, you know, I don't think Guadagni are a, a particularly bad side. We've seen them do, you know, some good things so far. So it was for me, it was a big, big opportunity because the first 45 minutes, and again, Junior programmed the, the game. They pushed for the game to be as early as possible. It was a 5pm kickoff, 5.15 kickoff here in Colombia. So it was still a warm afternoon in, in Barranquilla, in the Colombian Caribbean coast. And you could really see that you know both teams were kind of not quite at, at it in the first half, but the way Guarani was sitting off and you know, even when Junior broke into good positions, they weren't uh, you know tackling and, and getting tight and, and pressing. It was a very lackadaisical 30 minutes. And I think that Junior, given that they had good possession in good areas, they really should have taken advantage. Uh, again, you know, they were they were working the ball into good places. But, you know, I think uh, Chada wasn't quite working those passes. Teofilo Gutierrez was a bit lapsed with some of these flicks. And again, that's a little bit you know disrespectful, given that they made seven or eight great chances. I also think uh, I'm not a huge fan of Ruiz. You know, he's, he's a... Marmite kind of player, you know, you either love him or you hate him, and I, I kind of hate him. I can see that he puts in a lot of good effort. He puts in a, you know, his his he he works to win the ball back in in good areas. He he's, he's a physical presence, but I think he's just a bit sloppy, and I think his finishing isn't great. And I think there was a real notable difference when 
Junior brought on uh, Jonathan Alves in the second half. Uh, I just think there was a bit of a lack of movement. They weren't necessarily doing anything particularly wrong. They were working the ball. They were camped in the Guarani area for for large periods of the game. But I just think that that bit of movement to to switch up the defence or or that you know that bit of in you know precision in the pass, you know, a firm pass here, a little bit of movement there. And I think they could have cut open Guarani a little bit more easily. That said, they had a lot of chances. Johnny Gonzalez had a couple of chances. There was plenty of things happening. And, you know, after that first first 30 minutes, you could see Guarani kind of growing into the game a little bit. And they started to counter-attack, had a few good chances of themselves. Um, the Pablo Velasquez got sent off in the 65th minute. He did one of those famous, um, I'm going to lie on the floor and pretend I can't see the referee injured until hopefully he puts his red card away for about 10 minutes and everyone was, you know, protesting on his behalf. And then he stood up and looked completely shocked as if he hadn't heard the, the hullabaloo all around him after a, you know, a light knock he took on his way to getting a red card. Um, and that, again, it, it kind of made Guadani sit back and defend a little bit more. It still remained quite open. But it kind of did then give Junior the incentive to kind of push on. But I think really it was the introduction of Jonathan Alves, uh, a guy we saw last year with Barcelona, uh, that really did give give Junior a bit more movement up front. They've all got they've got good players, but they had a line of four attacking players who were quite static. Alves came on with a point to prove. He kind of moved the defense around a bit, and in the end, finally a tidy finish from Jimmy Chada in the 81st minute to give Junior the 1-0 win. Yeah, that goal, that goal was all about Alves' movement though, wasn't it? It was um, it was a superb run and, and, and he kept his composure well to then pull it back to Shara. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, I think obviously 1-0 first leg victory at home is decent, but I just do think there was still, you know, I don't think it will be this straightforward for Junior in the second leg. And I think they're going to have to up the game a little bit defensively um, they're going to be under more pressure. Uh, you know, I, again, I think Guarani didn't defend particularly well and still managed to withhold a lot of junior pressure in, in good areas. So I do think they'll kick themselves for not getting a couple more in this game. And it is still, you know, carefully set up for the second leg, which is going to be interesting away in Paraguay. And Austin, what, what did you make of this one? Yeah, I think Guarani are, are going to be pretty pleased with this result mainly because I didn't think they played all that well. They came to Barranquilla, obviously, with the the game plan of, all right, well, <clears throat> we'll sit back, we'll defend, maybe we'll get out with a nil-nil, maybe we'll get out with a 1-0. With a but it didn't seem like they defended all that well at the back. They let themselves get cut open a lot by this junior side, and junior just really didn't finish like they could. A better finishing from junior, and this is 3 or 4-0, tie over. But on the flip side of that, I think even though I said Guadalajara will be pretty happy, a better counterattack from them, and they could have absolutely gotten a goal. I thought Junior were kind of all scrambled all over the place whenever they gave up possession. And if Guadalajara would have been just that little bit clinical, they could have absolutely had an away goal here, and that could have proved to be huge. I think they're very much still in this tie, though. Uh, Centurion, their goalkeeper, was particularly impressive for me. I thought he made a lot of really nice saves, uh, adding to that junior frustration before they were finally able to break through with Chara. I agree with Simon. Alves changed the match. He's a significantly better option uh, than Ruiz up top to, to pair with Gutierrez or play in front of however you want, you want to kind of describe that relationship. He's just a better player. Um, and so I think in the second leg, I would be surprised if Alves didn't start. 
For Guarani, uh, the youngster Bogarin was a player who impressed me in the previous round. He did not start in this match, which wasn't altogether that surprising given kind of the game plan that Guarani approached it with. I would expect him to start in the second leg, and I'm intrigued to see he does. Uh, final point for me, credit to Velasquez. It's always great to see somebody, you know, try to get their way around a red card, but it shockingly never works. I don't know, the ref just never puts that red card back once he gets it out. Uh, but he gave it a go. You got to give him credit for that, I think, maybe. Okay, next up, it was a, it was an easy win yet again for Vasco da Gama uh, of Brazil. Um, they won 4-0 in the first leg of the last round. Um, against Universidad Concepcion and they've repeated the trick here in the third round against Jorge Wilsterman of Bolivia. Austin, Vasco's attacking play really impresses me, I have to say. You know, we're discussing pre-pod. So much movement and pace up top there. Paulinho, just 17 years old, but he seems to be getting better and better. And King Eddie had a torrid time, didn't he, at the back against Vasco? Yeah, he did. And I think we finally have the answer to the question we were all looking for. Who is better, a Portuguese explorer or a Bolivian aviator? And the answer is quite clear. It's the Portuguese explorer. 4-0 here in the first leg for Vasco. I'll admit, I did not expect this from Vasco. Um, I pegged them as thoroughly mediocre. And maybe they've benefited from playing uh, below average opposition. I think there's something to be said for that. But they've looked really good. And you mentioned it. The attack has looked really fluid. It's looked really strong. If Vasco can continue to play like that in the group stage, they're going to go into a difficult group, as we'll probably break down next week. But they're in with a shout. They played well to start this. Uh, They took advantage of of some defensive errors from Wilsterman. But so often in this competition, we see defensive errors made, but then teams fail to take advantage of it. We saw it in that match we just talked about. Guarani made defensive errors, but Junior didn't take advantage of them. In this match... When Wilsterman made errors, Vasco made them pay, and that was huge. Paulon, uh, the big center back, scored the first goal on a free kick. And then the second one, Paulinho kind of got through a, a, a poor offside trap. Like four Vasco players were offside, but he was not. Took a punch from Jimenez, the Wilsterman goalkeeper, but was able to finish. It was 2-0, and at that point, it kind of felt like Wilsterman, if they could keep it at that, you know, maybe the altitude of Bolivia going back for the second leg, yeah, maybe they could have a chance. Uh, but then it just fell apart right at the end. Yago Pikachu added another goal to his Libertadores tally, striking from just inside the 18, putting it into the corner to make it three. And then they added one more with the substitute heel, though, uh, nodding in at the far post after a really nice cross. Uh, that made it 4-0, and, and that's tie over at this point. We knew Wilsterman would probably struggle away from home in this match, but I think they they clearly struggled too much to really give themselves any chance going back to Bolivia. There's no way this team scores four goals against Vasco. There's no way Vasco allows four goals to be scored. They've not been scored upon yet in this competition. Uh, They might lose the tie in Bolivia, or the match in Bolivia, I should say, but they're not going to lose the tie. Uh, Seven yellow cards for Wilsterman in this match, and I think that just displays how kind of one step slow they were for the majority of this match, constantly diving into these challenges, constantly coming in late, just trying to hack down Vasco players to to keep them from getting into dangerous areas. This was comprehensive. Again, it's not a great opponent. It wasn't a great opponent in the round before. But to win with this sort of style, with this sort of ease in the Libertadores against anybody is impressive. And and Vasco have done well to to get themselves, you know, into the group stage barring a miracle. And and they can make some noise once they get there. Paulinho, in particular, you mentioned it, Adam, just 17 years old. 
he's been the standout player of this competition so far, I think. Uh, and he's one that, you know, bigger teams, uh, not just on the continent, but over in Europe, will have their eye on him when he goes up against Cruzeiro, against Racing, against Lau in the group stage, because that'll be the real test for him. And I think he's going to do pretty well. Yeah, I'm, I'm already really looking forward to seeing Vasco in that group, because... As you say, you know, they've probably been a little bit fortunate with the opposition they've come up against so far in the competition. And that group's really going to test uh, just how good they are but and how good pa- Paulinho is as well. A player, like I said, uh, each time I watch him, he just seems to be getting better and better and, and just impresses me more and more. Um, exciting times for him and for Vasco, I think. Moving on to the other match played on Wednesday, and that was Banfield of Argentina against Nacional of Uruguay. And this game finished 2-2, and it, and it sounds a thriller, but that doesn't quite tell the whole story, does it, Simon? No, you know, I think it was two teams which were, you know, well-organised, well-set-up. Um, and I think in the first half, they kind of cancelled each other out in terms of, you know, being organised. There wasn't, you know, particularly sloppy play, but there wasn't a great deal of invention or creativity. You know, the, both teams were moving the ball around fairly well, but it was kind of a, a lot of focus throughout the game on, on width, on getting the ball into the box. You know, fairly direct, um, not necessarily the most attractive game, but again, a, a fairly decent quality of football. Um, I think both teams will be tricky opponents for whoever they face in the future. Um, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the most creative, exciting football. And then in the second half, you know, they, the goals started flying in. But again, a lot of them were from crosses, um, corners. You know, the game finished two-two, um, and you know, it was exciting. Um, Nacional took the lead through Seba Fernandez. Banford pulled one back with through uh, Bertolo. Uh, then 82nd minute, Luis Espino looked to have given Nacional a really valuable 2-1 away win. And then last minute, 93rd minute, Dario Kvitanovic um, popped up with the with the equaliser for, for Banfield. A good atmosphere, um, you know, good crowd in Argentina. Nice display behind the goal. Some exciting football in terms of you know, the, the final minutes and those goals flying in. But overall, it wasn't the most, you know, creative, inspiring game, albeit, you know, a dramatic conclusion. You know, a lot of it was crosses into the box and some, you know, some headers, some solid football in midfield. So two teams which are, are interesting in terms of how well they're set up and how organised they are, but not the most exciting, creative football on display. But yeah, two solid teams overall. And what, what do you think, Adam? Did you see this one? I think I agree with you um, for most of what you said. I, in the, at the start of that second half, Banfield were very slow out the blocks. And, and that cost them dear, really, because once they went behind in the tie, you know, they were chasing it a bit. You know, they, they got back on level terms through an excellent header from Bertoli. You know, that was a, it was a superb cross from, um, I, think, I think I looked at it. He's, he's only 22 years old, Jorge Rodriguez. Um, possibly one to watch on on. on based on this display, um, as, as he did some decent defensive work as well. And, and it was, yeah, his superb cross that Bertoli uh, converted. And then both sides had chances to go 2-1 up. Mucci uh, just missed the chance to put Banfield ahead. Um, and at that point, you're thinking, yeah, if, if the Argentines can just get a lead to defend in Montevideo next week, then, yeah, you 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 have to feel that but they they could well be favourites for this tie. But yeah, with nine minutes left, Nationale ended up snatching the winner. Um, well, what looked like the winner. 
Um, and um, and yeah, it was a well-worked move. Finished off by Espino, I think it was, in, in down off the crossbar. It had that kind of pleasant clunk noise to it as it, as it hit the goal. Well, and um, the only thing missing from that was the roar from the away end. And that was something missing in this game, really, because the fact that, you know, that, that incident with those two national fans um, away to Chapecoense in the previous round meant that national fans were banned uh, from this fixture, which is a real shame because they would have brought thousands over because, you know, it's only a short journey from across there from uh, Montevideo. So I, f- I felt that was a bit of a shame. And, but yeah, just just as it looked like National had won this tie, Banfield grabbed a 93rd minute equaliser through uh, Savitanich. <laughs> Uh, the third, this is the third different way that name has been pronounced on the show this week. I'd like to point out. I was gonna, I was gonna pull Simon Shabby. back for it just to make him have to pronounce it again. It's just kind of fun, Dario. If you're listening to the podcast, please call in and help us say your name. Anyway, the remarkable thing was that Banfield almost won this tie um, because just seconds later, right from the kickoff, really. Um, they won the ball back and uh, and forced a superb save from the national goalie. Um, and uh, and yeah, but oh, Jesus Christ, sounds like my house is falling down. So yeah, it finished two two. All to play for in Montevideo next week. Um, really poor first half. A bit more fun in the second, uh, but overall not not the greatest quality. Moving on to Tuesday night's action, uh, which saw Santiago Wanderers. Lose 2-1 at home to Santa Fe, uh, despite dominating the game. Um, two moments of quick wing play from Anderson Plata. Uh, managed to swing the tie in the Colombians' favour. Um, I think that's the kindest way I can I can put it, really. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think this was particularly wondrous night, to be honest. Um, the Colombian-born ref nationalised. Venezuelan didn't have the best of nights. I don't think there's much argument to be had that Santa Fe should have been down to 10 men uh, when it was nil-nil. Viotti taken out through on goal. Uh, Viotti will actually be out of the second leg, which is a big blow for for Wanderers, as as I feel that he is their biggest threat up front um, with his pace and movement. Um, And, uh, and yeah, this game was always going to be not the greatest game of football, especially as it came on the same day as uh, that Juventus-Spurs match in the Champions League, which was probably one of the best matches of football you're likely to see this year. So <laughs> watching a Libertadores match after that sort of quality um, can, can be a bit of a slog at times. And uh, But yeah, it, it, it wasn't a terrible match and, and Wanderers you know, created quite a few opportunities. Um, they were unlucky not, not to take the lead, as I mentioned. And yeah, they hit the post before they did eventually score late on through uh, Bernardo Cerezo. So um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a disappointing result for, for Wanderers, as I pegged them last week, as, as having the capability of beating the Santa Fe team. And to be honest, I didn't really see much from Santa Fe on, on Tuesday night, which made me feel silly about that prediction. Because you know they they were pretty one dimensional. Um, they they had two danger men basically up front, and 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 the rest of the team didn't contribute much at all to to their play. So yeah, it's uh it it, it was a frustrating one from a Chilean point of view. How did you see it, Simon? Yeah, uh, you know I, I I would you know I was back the 
the Colombian representatives and want them to do well. But I kind of felt bad for Santiago Wanderers because they kind of messed it up big time themselves. As you say, Santa Fe, very, very limited. Anderson Plata, really quick, really important on the counter-attack. Completely destroyed uh, the Santiago Wanderers left-back over and over again. Um, again, I say that about three or four times, but that was enough to get the two goals, which made the difference. Uh, first one down the down the right wing, killed him for pace, pulled it across for Wilson Morello, little touch and finish, nice and tidy. And again, the second goal was exactly the same, running down the right wing, and there was a coming together. The first time you saw it, you thought that is no way a penalty. You see it again, and there was a sneaky little hand on the shoulder. Like, why are you doing that? You know, Santiago Wanderers, um, really silly, silly mistake. Because, again, I, you know, I don't think the referee necessarily had to give the penalty, but don't give him a decision to make. There's two defenders very close to the forward who's going nowhere, heading, you know, back away from goal, and he gets a little tug on the shoulder, and he's always going to go down. And Morello finished the penalty really nicely. Uh, the Santa Fe goalkeeper Castellanos had a good game, but at, right at the end. 80, 87th minute um, uh, 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 the, the ball was going straight towards him and he just parried it out into the penalty box you know goalkeepers nowadays you know I, I remember back in my day when goalkeepers would catch things sometimes um, it seems to be that you know people don't want to take the risk but really in that instance the risk was just pushing it out towards the six yard box and then finished off by Cerezo so again Santa Fe will be disappointed not to have that 2-0 uh, away win despite not necessarily controlling much of the game or offering much of a threat aside from uh, Anderson uh, Plata but you know disappointing to concede but again 2-1 win they'll probably play Betancourt more in the second leg in Bogota I think he did quite well in the in the first in the last round of qualifiers um, so I think that will be a an interesting upgrade but overall Santa Fe doing what Santa Fe do and I think Actually, their, their defensive work hasn't been as good as in previous years so far. Uh, we've seen them concede some silly goals and, and you know against some weak opposition, um, and both in the Libertadores and also in the Colombian League. So there's definitely still work to do. I don't think they have a great deal of quality, but Plata at least will give some hope for the side, uh, given his pace and his danger on the break, which is definitely something that Santa Fe will be looking to do in this competition. Yeah, Marco Medell, who put Melgar to the sword in the previous round with a superb long-range effort, he, he had a free kick that hit the post in this game. And, and you believe that the Santa Fe keeper even managed to get a hand on that? He was probably man of the match, no? Yeah, it looks like he did get a, a fingertip on it. He, he made a few good saves. You know, he's a good goalkeeper. He may well go to the to the World Cup with Colombia, which perhaps is more of a reflection of Colombia's lack of options in goal. But, you know, he's, he's considered one of the top three or four goalkeepers in the Colombian league. And he had a good game. It's just that sloppy, sloppy punch on a pretty straightforward save that opened up for Sadeso to give that late goal, which is a real disappointment for Santa Fe. But, yeah, I think he made some good saves and that free kick in particular. I think he got a fingertip to it to push it onto the post and, and keep that one out. Austin, I, I believe that you also caught this game. What did you make of it from your more neutral point of view? Yeah, not a ton to add to what you guys said. I, I didn't think the football was of a particularly high quality, not that it was ever expected to be. I would warn the listeners, uh, for risk of doing what we did in the first playoff round with Santa Fe, 
I would stay away from this second leg. We know how it's going to go. Santa Fe is going to go to Bogota and they're going to grind out a nil nil and go through and get booed by their own fans. Like it just feels like destiny at this point. Um, and then they'll get into the group stage and, and muck up what, what could be a fairly interesting group. Although I'm not sure that Santiago Wanderers would do much better in that group that this uh, tie is going to spit out into. Credit to Santa Fe for taking advantage of some poor defending from Wanderers. Um, Wanderers, I think, will feel like they should have done better in this match. And, and I think they could have done better. And that's a shame for them. Uh, they're clearly not as talented as the majority of teams in this competition but they really could have given themselves a chance to go to Bogota with something. Um, and now that they don't have that, it's pretty hard to see them getting back into this tie. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably have to agree with you there. But the fact, if, if Santa Fe do play as badly as, as they did in the previous round at home against uh, Tashara, then uh, you know, maybe Wanderers can sneak a goal. But the, I think their, their issue is the, the fact that they have to score two is, 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 is probably going to let them down and that that brings me on to something we were kind of discussing pre-pod and that's the away goals rule in in the Libertadores so you know if Wanderers did win that second leg 1-0 2-2 on aggregate uh, but they would go out on away goals and and it's and it's those situations I always feel that the away goals rule is a bit harsh I I am more of a view of that it's I think even going straight to penalties is a fairer way to decide it than than uh, the away goals rule yeah I like how Carnival doesn't use extra time for anything but the final I I think extra time is is difficult um I just don't think that that's the fairest way to decide it. Away goals rule is interesting um, because of the way that the Libertadores is that going away can be so difficult. I think you kind of see the motivation for it, but you're right. It, it's, it is a bit harsh for Wanderers to then go back it and win one nil in this next leg and then be out of the competition on away goals to a Santa Fe team that weren't necessarily demonstrably better than them. So I wouldn't mind seeing it done away with in Brazil. They've done away with away goals in the Copa do Brasil this year. Previously, they hadn't had it in the finals. They had in the other rounds, um, but they've done away with that. Any tie on aggregate now will go straight to penalties. And I think that's that's probably the best way to decide a tie. I, th- I certainly agree with you, Adam, that I think it's it's the most fair way to decide a tie for sure. And Simon? Yeah, I can see both sides of it. I think simplifying it uh, is always is always nice. Um, but again, I do think as Austin mentioned, the going away in South America is not like going away in Europe. You're not playing on pristine pitches in front of, you know, you know, calm fans. You know, occasionally giving a little sing song. It's it's a real challenge, um, and I do think incentivizing teams to try to get away goals does have its merits. Um, there are plenty of teams who, you know, we don't want to see Santa Fe defending any more than they already do. Um, and having an incentive to get that away goal is positive, but I do I do understand the concern and, and simplifying things and having a you know kind of making things a little bit more level in terms of the the, the on the field situation. Yeah, I can see both sides of things, um, but I do think it's worth considering how difficult it is to get an away result in South America and perhaps that should be rewarded. Could you do something maybe where you, I don't know, if it's if it's nil-nil and then a score draw, you give a credit for the away goal, but with, if both teams have an away goal, you, I don't know, that gets too complicated. But I feel like I get, you know, I get rewarding performing away from home, but if both teams have away goals, I think just rewarding the team that has happened to score more of them feels a bit off. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, some some games are crazy and some games are not. And it's not always the you know, it's it's not always right to just reward the team that happens to be involved in one of these games away from home because you know it can go, it can be very unpredictable in South America, and sometimes the conditions are right for a four-three. And in other games, it's going to be a more, perhaps better quality 1-0 or 2-1. So, yeah, it is It is a difficult one to adjudicate on. Uh, just before we recorded the pod today, we did quickly go on Twitter and ask um, our listeners if, if they had any questions for us. Um, thanks to everybody who responded. Um, hopefully, we can just fit them all in. Sorry if, if you're question doesn't get mentioned but first off um diego mendoza he wanted to know simon if there's any other youngsters catching your eye at deportivo cali apart from benedetti yes there is and it's a it's a very timely question uh, because there's a 17 year old who just had a an explosive couple of uh two or three first games of the year for deportivo cali his name is uh deva caicedo He's 17 years old. Uh, this week, he scored a, a fantastic free kick in a 4-0 win for Cali. Uh, you know, stepped up with a lot of class, curled into the top corner. He also won a penalty in that game. Uh, he's appeared in all three of Deportivo Cali's games so far this year. A really, really interesting player. Can play out wide or as a centre forward. Quite short, but quick, confident, driving forward at the defender's. Some quality as well, a bit of a bit of poise, a bit of, a bit of a, a pause, you know, a real a, a direct pacey player, but a player with a bit more about him than just that. He's been involved in the Colombian national team from under 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 seventeen, under fifteen level. He played at the World Cup, under seventeen World Cup, um, scored a goal there. Um, the goal he scored this week, he actually dedicated to his sister uh, Maria Jose, who was who was killed in a robbery. Um, earlier this year uh, when she's just 11 years old and he was very emotional after scoring the goal he raised up a, a shirt with her face in it um, but uh, yeah he said you know it was a really special important day for him um, he was very emotional but he's a really really interesting player so definitely one to look out for he's been involved a lot for a 17 year old often in Colombia with 17 18 year olds they'll perform and they'll get games in the in the cup competitions but yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of expectations on the on the the big teams to perform regularly and, and risking it on some young players doesn't often happen and they've brought him on in, in key moments to try and change the game and he has done so he's very interesting to look at uh, Deba Caicedo D E I B E R uh, and then Caicedo so one to watch out for the other one I particularly like at Cali again not so young but Kevin Balanta uh, a midfielder who's 20 years old been involved with Colombia under 20s also went to the Olympics real athletic powerful ball winner when he gets it he can drive forward and dribble at pace with skill as well he's uh he's not particularly subtle but he's definitely the kind of player that I can see doing well in, in a lot of leagues really makes himself makes his presence known in the in the midfield and, and can very quickly turn defense into attack winning the ball and, and driving forward so uh Balanto I think is should already probably have already made a move uh, beyond Deportivo Cali, Benedetti was mentioned as is a class act, really, really special. Probably the best player in the Colombian league, or definitely up there. And 20 years old, uh, you know, a complete playmaker. Balanta is a midfield destroyer, and Deva Caicedo is a very raw but very skillful, pacey winger or forward who's really making a name for himself in his first few games as a professional player. Okay, um, and we also had a question come in from Brian Bertie and. 
um, on a Colombian, and that's uh, Julian Mejia. Um, how do you think he will get on in Peru? Yeah, so Mejia's a 27-year-old midfield playmaker. He's played he played for Atletico Nacional. He, he was at Envigado for a while as well. I think he's a player with a lot of good quality. Um, he's you know got a good free kick. He's got a good range of passing, nice technique. I think he's uh, he's well suited. I think to to perhaps playing in the Peruvian league. I think he'll shine. He needs an important role within the team. When he was at Nacional, he was limited to just playing in the the less important games or the cup games, uh, and he was always solid enough. But I think there's a bit more to him than that. And I think being the key man, you know, he showed it when he was at Bucaramanga and he showed it at Envigado, when he's given responsibility, when he gets to get on those free kicks, when he gets to get the, his foot on the ball, he can be much more than just a, a clog in the machine. So I think uh, I think he'll do well. Um, he's gone to Sporting Cristal, I believe. I think he'll, he'll be a good signing for them. I think he's a player I like. He's a player with a lot of quality. Um, doesn't necessarily have the physical attributes to impose himself on a game and can sometimes drift out of the game. Um, but if you give him a role, if you get him on the ball, then I think he'll he'll do contribute well. Good professional and you know a good level of technical ability. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting that he's moved to Sporting Cristal as um, as former Universidad Católica and Chile under twenty boss Mario Salas. Um, he was successful with both. Really managed a good run with Chile under twenties in the under twenty World Cup a few years ago, and also you know won back to back titles in two thousand sixteen with Católica. Salas is a pretty good head coach, in my opinion. And I, I, I was reading a Peruvian newspaper the other day, which was saying that there in Peru, they found, uh, uh, Chris Dalva found um, his training methods revolutionary. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see how Sporting Cristal do this year in, in Peru, as, as I get the feeling that kind of any sort of small advantage like that on the on the on the training field could take a team far in in what is quite a weak league as as we often see in the in the continental competitions here in South America um, moving on to another question uh, Simon I think one came in for me yeah I've got a question here from uh, Mario uh, Robertico on uh, Twitter he asks I would ask if Chilean football is providing new players to its national team, is there a new golden generation? So, Adam, what can we look forward to? What are your what are your prospectus on the Chilean national team and, and some interesting Chilean players moving forward? Yeah, I, th- I think long-term listeners will probably know the answer to this question. Um, yeah, I, I haven't got a great deal of hope of there being another golden generation anytime soon in Chilean football. Re- really, there's only one kind of young Chilean that is a regular at a club in 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 the top in a top league in Europe, and that's Eric Polga, who's at uh, Bologna in Italy. And I think that tells you uh, tells you all you need to know really ab- about the quality coming through here. A lot of the kind of more the a lot of the Chileans who are probably too good to be playing in Chile, but not good enough to be playing in Europe, are currently playing in Liga MX. And I'm not the biggest fan of that league. I, I have watched quite a bit of it over the last year. I don't think it's the quality of it is, is particularly great. I don't think players there develop as, as, as well as they can do. And, and I feel that many players just stag- stagnate a little bit. So I, I, I am very concerned about the next few years in Chilean football. <sighs> you know, a lot of the 
Chilean youngsters like uh, Pablo Arangues, for example, Union Española. Some may have seen him in the Copa Sudamericana this week. You know, there's been a lot of hype about him over the last couple of years, but for me, he, you know, he just doesn't do enough on a on a consistent basis, and and that's probably why he's still yet to earn a move out outside of outside of Chile. Um, I know there was clubs in Argentina interested in in him recently, uh, and in the past, I think Inter Milan had uh, one eye on him. But yeah, he, he hasn't really kicked on as well as many of us had hoped, um, despite the the odd sublime moment here and there. But yeah, overall, it's it's difficult to be optimistic about uh, about Chilean football at the moment because you know you just have to look at the performance in in not just the senior Libertadores in the last few years, but also sort of the under-20 version as well and Colo Colo this week in the under-20 version have lost 5-0 to Nacional of Uruguay and 5-0 to Independiente de Valle in, in Ecuador which at that level is is, is remarkable um, gap in quality so so yeah con- concerning times overall for, for Chile and, and yeah I, I, I don't think the rest of the continent will, will have too much to worry about for playing against Chile well maybe in the next cycle because the likes of Vidal and Sanchez and Arangis Charles Arangis are still around but yeah I fear for the cycle certainly after Qatar 2022 at the moment but a lot can change in, in, in sort of four or five years so yeah, fingers crossed that, um, that there's some gems coming through somewhere. Okay, and I've just seen we've got one more question coming for you, Simon, and that's from Camilo Escobar um, in Colombia. He's, he's asking why Colombian football has evolved so much in, in recent years. Well, it's a, it's a massive question, and I think it's something that we could definitely look at doing something you know more complete on. Yeah, definitely. I I, I would. <laughs> I, I think I was saying saying to you recently that you know I, I'd quite like to do a whole pod on this really, with with maybe getting Carl back in as well discuss it. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. So so hopefully we can do a whole special <laughs> on this question. Yeah, well, absolutely. And you know, I'll say some things that come to mind, and if anyone has any other points that they think are worth discussing, then maybe we could bring them into the discussion. Uh, but for me, I think, well, first thing to say is that Colombia has massively underachieved in the last 20 years, uh, given the size of the country, given that there's, you know, three or four, four or five, maybe even more major cities which have, you know, clear footballing cultures. Football is massive. There are big, you know, there are two big teams in all of the big cities. Um, the the country has you know produced some great athletes, um, so there's a lot of good ingredients that have always been there in, in Colombian football. In terms of what's changed, well, I think tactically, uh, I think it's starting to evolve. I think after this is you know, a personal opinion, I think after uh, Valderrama, there was kind of a bit of too much of an obsession on the number ten and having that one star player. You know, looking back into the 90s and even when I first arrived here in Colombia, every single team was built around one number 10 who was the most talented player. And I think if you look at the Colombian national team uh, from the 98 World Cup up until they qualified again, there was a bit too much of an obsession with number 10s and always 
building a team around the most talented players and, and young players all aspiring to be that number 10. I think that was an issue and I think it kind of overlooked some of the qualities that Colombia has and we've seen coming out more recently, whether it be the powerful defenders who often you know, come from the Pacific regions of the country or you know, have a, you know, a built, a based upon their physicality as opposed to just Taylor Technique. So the likes of Danson Sanchez and Jedi Mina have emerged and, and Colombia has produced a good number of very interesting central defenders. Um, some wingers, there's a lot of good wingers, you know, pacey guys, Cuadrado and the, and the like. You know, I think Colombian football has started to evolve beyond the obsession with the number 10. Um, and I think that's a healthy thing. I think traditionally Colombian football is, is you know, possession-based, moving the ball, which I think serves Colombian players really well in terms of their development and in terms of contributing to some of the most important leagues in the world. I think whereas in Brazil, sometimes, and again, this is me being very cynical, but sometimes it's it's getting the ball out wide and being direct and, and not taking too many risks. Well, I think Colombian football, when played well, you know, does encourage a bit of more collective play, a bit more build-up, you know, focus on central midfielders, having some good you know, good good touch and good technique and, and, and taking some risks on the ball. So I think there's a lot of, ingre- you know, good traditions combined with the, the physical attributes that some Colombian players have, the variety, the, the country is a lot of different regions and cultures and, 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 and you know, uh, races and, and different kind of backgrounds that produces a variety of different kinds of players, whether they be smaller technical players from the interior of the country or, some of the the more powerful physical players we've seen coming from the Pacific region, or you know some of the skillful players from up in the the Caribbean coast. And again, that's a very simplified view of Colombia. But I think there are all these interesting ingredients. And on top of that, the the league has become much more stable. Uh, obviously, in the 90s, drug money was a big part of it. You know, teams like America de Cali, Atlético Nacional, were able to sign the best players in South America because of drug money in the economy, either directly or indirectly. If there's lots of, uh, you know, millions and millions and billions of dollars floating around, it's going to find its way into football because it's football. Everyone loves football. So that helped clubs like Nacional retain their players and America de Cali to bring in players. And then once that money had gone or once that connection between illegal money and, and football was separated, it did create a lot of issues, financial issues. America de Cali fell into the second division. You know, other teams were looking to, you know, balance the books. And, and there was a little, you know, issues in terms of, you know, security in Colombian football. Uh, you know, there's plenty of different issues. And I think a lot of the stability has also helped clubs, again, are starting to think increasingly about export market um, and, and developing players for, for export, but also being more, responsible and, and thinking more long-term in terms of player development. So I think Colombia is finally getting to where it should have been for many, many years. I think tactical evolutions, um, more less of a focus on one or two individuals and more focus on collective play uh, and valuing more the likes of, you know, fullbacks, attacking fullbacks or, or wingers or, or looking to develop central defenders, looking to play, you know, a bit more of a, uh, collective style of football, which I think is well suited to some of the traditions of Colombian football. I think these are all positive factors. Um, and again, I'm sure there's plenty more we could discuss. But in terms of what comes to mind straight away, those are some of the things I've seen in Colombia in terms of improvements. And I think Colombia has everything to be on a par with Argentina and Brazil. I don't think it's too far off. And I think 
as long as the league administration, which can be sometimes be an issue, is is kept in check and, and clubs continue to look to the future and and remain stable financially, I think there's a lot of progress that can continue to be made in the Colombian leagues and with Colombian players. Okay, fascinating stuff. Um, I think that's a good point in which to end on. So, Simon, I'll just quickly come back to you and ask you if you have anything to plug. Yeah, I mean, on my Twitter, at Simon Edwards SAF, doing some youth player profiles on the Twitter, doing other bits and pieces here and there. I was on TalkSport this week talking about Colombia at the World Cup. So, yeah, follow follow me on Twitter and there'll be bits and pieces popping up and we'll do some more coverage on the Copa Libertadores as well. Uh, What about you, Adam, Uh, on Twitter? Yes, you can find me. On Twitter, at AdamBranson84. Um, as for things to plug, I do have something to plug this week, actually. And and that is my article on SkySports.com on Vinicius Jr., the world's most expensive teenager. Yeah, he's he's going to be moving across to Real Madrid in the, in, the, in the next year. And I've been charting his progress over the past year or so. So try and give that a read if you can and um, any feedback appreciated on that and on this pod as ever. Austin, do you have anything to plug? I do, I do. I'm on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906, so be sure to follow me there. I wrote something for the World Football Index um, on how Brazilian clubs this year will once again be allowed to move a few of their home matches uh, outside of their own state. Uh, The rub of this is that Stadiums built for the World Cup will have the opportunity to host some first division matches uh, as the teams that occupy those cities are nowhere near the first division. Uh, So this will benefit clubs like Flamengo, um, who can move a couple of their matches and get big crowds. It'll also benefit a lot of uh, some of the smaller clubs who decide to sell off some of their matches, which, again, probably isn't great for the integrity of the competition, uh, but arguing that uh, the Brazilian down is is a competition that has integrity at all is, is probably an argument you don't want to try to make. Uh, so I wrote I wrote about that uh, kind of defending the policy. There was a lot of pushback as to uh, how the C- the CBF enacted it and, and why it was was so wrong. And so I kind of defended it a little bit. So there's that. Um, and then I got a couple of scouting spotlight pods should be out soon. I know Tom and I are going to record at some point this weekend. So be on the lookout for plenty of those as well. And then the final thing I would plug would be our big written Libertadores preview, which should be on the site sometime soon, right? Yeah, hopefully by the end of next week. Okay, that's great, Austin. Uh, yeah, so that rounds us up for this week. Um, just left to say as ever, thank you for for choosing this podcast and if you have enjoyed it rate and review us on iTunes or give us some feedback on Twitter that's always appreciated as well so we will be back next week with more Copper Libertadores review this time obviously reviewing the second legs of these four ties we'll also be doing a quick preview of the group stages to go with that article that Austin mentioned so That's all from us for this week. A big thanks to Simon Austin for joining me and goodbye.